I killed the last honorable man 15 years ago since then. You've seen his porch from downstairs? Mm-hmm. Is your mouth all glued up with Connie juice? I asked you a question. I said I seen it, sir. <laughs> oh, you got a murderous rage in you, and I like it. Oh, it's life boiling up inside of you. It's good. Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast. Look at the film collaborations between Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio. Show me all the blue. Show me all the blueprint. Join Garrett. You don't say that name. Matt. I haven't slept for fucking weeks. And they're returning Michael Ganeri. Rather high strung chap. As they look at the cinematic feats of the combined talents from the famed director and big star. We're taking home cold hard cash via commission, motherfucker. All coming up only on Percolated Media. This is bad for everybody. What's next, dead politicians? Shutter Island, released February 19th, 2010. Budget $80 million. Box office, an impressive $294 million. This film, of course, is directed by Martin Scorsese and starring Leonardo DiCaprio. And what is this, the fourth film that they've done together at this point? They're coming off of their last collaboration having been the one that finally got Scorsese his Oscar, won Best Picture, won Best Director. It was a big hit. I think possibly Scorsese's biggest hit up to that point. So the expectations, I remember being pretty high on this one up until they pushed it back. Do you guys remember that? I remember it very well. And it's weird that, and this is a pattern with Scorsese, because he got some Oscar buzz for Goodfellas. It was nominated for Best Picture. A lot of people say it should have won. They're right. I'm not going to debate that here. And then right after that, he did Kate Fear. Here, not only gets Oscar buzz, he gets actual Oscar statues. And we discussed last week whether those were deserved or not. And then after that, he does another psychological horror film. I, I find that to be an interesting pattern with Scorsese. He could have gone another biopic. He could have done whatever he wanted. And this was what he chose to do. And I remember getting kind of excited for it, thinking Scorsese was going to go back to horror. I was up for it. And you're right, Mike. As soon as they pushed that release date back, not a good sign. I was more apprehensive walking in that theater in February than I would have been if this was released. When was it supposed to be released? In October or something? Oh, yeah, October, you're right, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I was a little apprehensive, but yeah, I, I do remember that date being pushed back very well. That's a really good call with the Cape Fear comparison, because I was thinking about Cape Fear as I was watching this, but the specific dots of connecting following up Goodfellas with Cape Fear to following up The Departed with this, that wasn't connected as much, and now having thought about that, but you having mentioned that, it, it, it makes me think about that kind of connection. That is interesting. I, I remember, from what I've read from Scorsese's comments on the making of this film it seems to have been very difficult he's kind of vague about what exactly was difficult about it but it seems from what i've read it was a very difficult shoot and he was very frustrated with that he's not commented too much about this film in the year since i kind of wonder what that is all about because you know it's not like a film where you watch and you think i at least i don't think that you watch and you go oh this was butchered in the edit it doesn't seem like he was having studio interference or something or i don't know exactly what would cause some bad feelings there yeah the guy had just won an oscar mm-hmm. there, there shouldn't be any pushback he should be given the green light to do whatever he wanted i haven't read that those frustrations from him but I, I don't know how you could be so frustrated if you just won an oscar and you're doing your immediate follow-up yeah 
seems like maybe it was something to do, I don't know, he's, he's, because he's also said that about the aviator, thinking the aviator was a really difficult shoot, but he's always vague, like, he didn't, he didn't, like, shit talk people behind their backs or in interviews or whatever, and stuff like that, so I don't know what exactly what that was about. It's not like Gangs of New York, where it was difficult for reasons that made the press, him having this kind of editing push with Harvey Weinstein and everything like that, but this comes out, we talked in this series before about how post-Gangs of New York, I'd say, basically everything that Scorsese does is automatically, as soon as he announces it, in Oscar contention. Not to just boil everything down to that, but I think that's why these movies are getting made, essentially, because that is the prestige of it. Not for not, not on his end. He makes the movies that he's interested in making, but for the studios, that's kind of what is attractive to them about it, is, you know, if we can get some awards attention for this, because he's never going to be like a billion-dollar movie guy, you know. And there was some of that discussion around this film, and then it, it gets pushed back, and it's in February, which is considered dumping ground, where you put some shitty horror movie that nobody is interested in seeing, and you just dump it because there's nothing else out, and people are like, I guess I'll see that. I remember at the time that was such a weird thing, and there was a whole bunch of stuff, like they changed the title of this, and then they changed it back. Well, that didn't seem to have been really all that dramatic. Do, do you guys remember that either? They were going to call it Ashcliff at one point? So my take on all of this was, in doing some research, Mike, what you were saying about anything Scorsese touches automatically gets Oscar intention, that was precisely why Paramount punted it, because at the time, they did not have the additional 50 to 60 million to market this as an awards movie, which goes to show the differentiation between Scorsese and producers. He doesn't think in terms of awards or in terms of financial gain, maybe less so now since he got his Oscar prior. I did not have a apprehension going into that theater based on punting the release date. Mine is was more of, I was kind of having DiCaprio burnout, I'm not going to lie, and this was not... This was not restricted to just his works with Scorsese, which which I did let I have liked all three movies prior, and the last one I gave a ten to, so I better fucking like it. But it was around this time where a lot of his projects were just not appealing to me. He did mm. Blood Diamond and Body of Lies and Revolutionary Road. Yeah. None of those movies did anything for me. They they didn't move me. I thought he did quality work, but nothing as an actor that I thought was putting his best foot forward. So I didn't see him doing the caliber of work that I knew he was capable of. And having the Dennis Lehane adaptation aspect fascinated me also because he had had quite a few of his books, Mystic River and Gone Baby Gone, at the time. Both came out, both huge hits, won awards. I mean, it's not, this guy was a, was a hot ticket. He wrote a lot of The mm-hmm. Wire. So the idea of Martin Scorsese, of all people, to me, Scorsese doing a Dennis Lehane adaptation is the equivalent of Francis Ford Coppola doing a John Grisham book, which mm-hmm. he actually did, where right. we're getting these real pristine directors to make adaptations of, I'd call it a slight notch above airport reads, where all of his books and Grisham to an extent as well. They're very easy reads, despite them being on the lengthier side. Shutter Island's close to 400 pages. But they're very pulpy. You can get through them easily. So I didn't think this was going to be something like Scorsese adapting The Age of Innocence, which is not, which is the, the complete antithesis uh, of Shutter Island. So I was, right. I was both curious, but I was also saying, okay, Marty, could you have cast anybody else besides Leonardo DiCaprio? I thought he had pictures, dirty pictures of him at this point. It's sort of like when 
Ridley Scott got to the point where he put Russell Crowe in every single movie for like eight in a row. And half of those roles could have gone to actors who fit the roles better than Russell Crowe. Need a 50-year-old Robin Hood with like a receding hairline, yeah. Yeah, and a beer guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. And I'm very kind of fascinated by DiCaprio's career. I mean, of course, I would naturally be given what we're the series that we're doing. But this, I think this movie is kind of the start of the era that I think we're still in where Scorsese, or uh, excuse me, DiCaprio gets really selective about what movies he's in. He does not make many movies. He will go several years without making one. He mostly works with really big name directors, Scorsese, Tarantino. Baz Luhrmann is a divisive director, but he's certainly a big name and, and he has the connection with DiCaprio going way back. And even Clint Eastwood, a Jay Edgar being a pretty big misfire, but you know, on paper it made a lot of sense. And I think this is kind of the start of that in a way because up until today, every DiCaprio film that is theatrically released, so I'm not counting, don't look up, makes $100 million or more domestic and $300 million or more international. And these are not for your typical kind. I mean, he, he doesn't do any kind of franchises or sequels, reboots, any, anything that has a big IP, unless you count The Great Gatsby as an IP, but that seems like kind of a stretch. And he manages to make them very successful. I, you guys saw this in theaters, right? Yeah, I did. It was a Valentine's Day viewing of all things. Wow, that is interesting. Well, you know, it's interesting with the plot. You know, these past couple ones that we did, I remember thinking, oh, The Departed, I've seen this a bunch of times, so it should be easy to recap the plot. And I had a very light kind of summary. As I was going through it, I was like, no, this is kind of difficult because it's got multiple plot lines going on. There's multiple characters that you're following and stuff. And then with this one, I was like, oh, this will be pretty easy because you're just with Leo the whole time. And I forgot it has this complicated flashback structure that is, like, constantly <laughs> flashing back to visions and dreams you know, and nightmares. I peek behind the curtain. Matt and I have been recording another series. We've been recording a Batman series as we do this one. And Matt and I have been joking. I do not envy Mike for having to do these plot summaries for these movies. And this one especially. I don't envy you, dude. So, like, <laughs> this, is, this is quite a task you have to do here. And Dennis Lehane's an interesting guy. You mentioned The Wire. I do know him from that. And I remember interviews leading up to the release of this. He was kind of sketchy on how good of a job he felt that Scorsese did on it, even though he did mention a hundred times how honored he was that Scorsese was doing it. So... Maybe Scorsese just couldn't agree on a free path as to how he was going to end this, but it's a real difficult task to adapt this novel. And Matt, you've read this, correct? I have, but I didn't read it until after I had seen the movie. Okay. It's been a good decade since I've read it. I almost have been lobotomized myself because I barely remember reading the reading the, <laughs> read the prose. And this task was done by somebody who Matt loves. Uh, this person worked on Terminator Genesis. And I think she worked on Avatar as well. She worked on Alita. The, the Battle Cameron. Angel? Yeah. She's had big, big movies in the past. And I don't I don't envy anybody who has to adapt this. Even though I haven't read the book, I can just get the feeling that this is kind of more complicated than just somebody going undercover. This was a real, real crazy task that Scorsese took on. But uh, we'll discuss whether it works or not. Yeah. So let's get into that crazy, complicated task that they took on. We open with a boat coming into a harbor, and where are we? We're, of course, in Massachusetts. Uh, it almost feels like they've had a weekend, a very, very long and free weekend, 
to film on while they were doing The Departed or something like that. Like, just like everybody, like they, they're still in that Boston accent world. And we see our main character, U.S. Marshal Teddy Daniels, played, of course, by Leonardo DiCaprio. And he's, uh, he's a bit of a mess. I think he's, like, vomiting, and he's got a migraine, and he's real sweaty, and he's telling himself to pull himself together. And it's him and his partner, Chuck, who's played by Mark Ruffalo, and the two of them are U.S. Marshals coming in to investigate a disappearance that happened on Shutter Island. Yes. And pause a second, because I have to get into this. Right away, when we meet Ruffalo's character, there's something afoot at the Circle K. <laughs> because... Go back to last year. We did those films, too. <laughs> because DiCaprio comes out from vomiting, and then, as you said, Mike, he's sweating, and he comes out, and he goes, oh, so you're my partner. So you guys wouldn't meet when you guys get on the boat? Right away, I'm like, okay. My blinders were already down, and I'm like, I already know what's going on here. They give it away at the first fucking line of this movie. I mean, they give it away in the premise of the movie. <laughs> That's kind of the whole question of the movie, in a way. It's sort of, I think a lot of people's reaction to this movie sort of depends on the question of how you feel about it being predictable, because it is very predictable. And the question, I guess, just becomes how one, as an individual, does that enhance the film or does that hurt the film? You know what I mean? Because I think mm-hmm. that it's just, it's an almost like a Rorschach test, because I feel like everybody pretty much guesses what the twist, in some way, maybe not every detail of it, but I think pretty much everybody gets what the twist of the movie is pretty early on, in the sense of the genre. It's a guy going to investigate a disappearance at a mental hospital, and the guy seems to be perhaps a little psychologically troubled. It's like, well, I think I kind of see where this is going. You don't think Scorsese was trying to build up to that reveal at the end, which no. obviously... You don't think that at all? No, because you know who else makes it blaringly obvious? Dennis Lehane in the first chapter of the book. The way the prose is written, and like I said, it's been a very long time since I've read it. He makes it emphatically clear at the beginning, and he also, Scorsese, makes the quote-unquote ambiguous ending, which will get divulged later. He makes that a lot clearer as far as the, the big question, leaning one way or the other, than the book does. So the fact that you see Scorsese through... Uh, or you, Imagine Marty Scorsese in this movie. I mean, he'd probably have to be stepping on a footstool to get in front of the mirror. <laughs> but the mirror is a great representation of this movie because that shot of him staring at himself in the mirror saying, pull yourself together, reinforces the idea that this movie is entirely about perspective. And that's how the movie functions. This is one of the consummate movies that changes for you when you watch it on multiple viewings. Now, I'm not saying that you have to do that in order to like it or, or dislike it on your first viewing, but... It's a movie that's about the process versus the actual endpoint. Because the plot twists that are perpetrated throughout this movie are glaringly obvious, but that's the point of the pulp genre. And especially looking at what Scorsese was paying homage to cinematically. There's a lot of Hitchcock in this movie. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which has a very similar type of ending, if you've seen that movie. And the... What's the movie with Stacey Keach? The ninth, not The Ninth Gate. Um, uh, the Ninth Configuration. Ninth Configuration, that's it. Knowing those influences, if you happen to do, which I did at the time, will make everything all the more obvious. So I do think it depends on perspective, but at the same time, I don't think Scorsese was intentionally trying to fool people. 
I'm going to say right now, I think that's a mistake. As an audience that comes in, not knowing any of the source material, not knowing the way it's introduced, I think is a big mistake to not keep audiences on the edge of their seats and give away right away what the hell you're going to do. So what's the point of watching the movie then? This is kind of where I think it kind of splits the difference in a way. You mentioned Hitchcock, and of course Scorsese, like all you know, directors, worships Hitchcock, and one of the films that this is very much like is, of course, Vertigo, which is, and it's like a lot of Hitchcock movies, but I, I feel like Vertigo is holding a real kind of uh, influence on this film in, in its picture of this very disturbed guy who's sort of haunted by the memory of this woman and how that impacts the story. And the thing in Vertigo, I guess I should just spoil Vertigo here, I guess. Oh, I don't know we're going to spoil a 70 on the other side movie. The whole thing in Vertigo is that there's this woman and she seemingly dies, and then Jimmy Stewart meets a woman who looks alarmingly like her, and he becomes obsessed with her. And basically, as soon as you meet her, you find out she has a bit of exposition that no one else sees, but she narrates it, that she was the original woman, and that she had faked her death. And so, all this time, for the rest of the movie, for like the second half of the movie, or the last 40 minutes or something, Jimmy Stewart doesn't realize that she is literally the same woman and that she did not die, but the audience knows it. And so we're watching the kind of way that that plays out, and we focus on the symbols of it and, and on the psychological feeling of it and the emotions and the imagery of it more than the idea of something being revealed. So it's kind of what Hitchcock, his classic thing about surprise versus suspense. And I think that that's more of what interests Scorsese here. Not suspense exactly, but... The idea of we know where this is going, so now we watch how it plays out. Now, the weird decision that they kind of make, I guess it's not that weird, but what I think is the decision that they make that's a little odd is that I think what they're saying is the audience will be able to predict this, or maybe they will, maybe they won't. We sort of don't care in a way if they predict it, because what is going to happen over the next two hours is going to be still enjoyable and suspenseful and creepy regardless of whether you know the ending or not. I think that's essentially what Scorsese's perspective on that is. And that's a very odd... I can't think of a lot of movies that have that kind of thing where they're like, it's not so much that he's trying to be predictable, but just I don't think he cares that people can predict the ending or not. Because I don't think that that's what interests him. I think that what interests him is the way that it plays out and the line between fantasy and reality becoming blurred and the kind of construction of the world that it's in. More than the kind of mystery of it. I know that when he did, I think it was when he won the Oscar, he had a quote where he said that The Departed was his first movie with a plot. And I kind of think that that's a very telling comic because I don't think plot interests him so much as atmosphere and not what the story is itself, but the way it's told. And he chooses a particular kind of way for this film. And I think it's it's an interesting one. I don't know. I, I can see why this movie doesn't work for some people and why it works for others because it is very, I think it is very much how much you buy on to that basic kind of question of, is it okay that this is predictable or is it not? And also the question of when the ending and the revelations do finally come, how preposterous you find it or like, if you have a problem with that or, or whatever, but we'll get to that. We also find out at this point that his wife is dead. This is being the year of Leonardo DiCaprio's dead wife, because this is also the year he does Inception. I was thinking that a lot while I was watching this. I was like, didn't Matt and I already review this movie? <laughs> no, because this movie didn't put me to sleep, ironically. <laughs> all right, all right. So they get to the uh, island. They're forced to surrender their guns to the head guard, who's played by John Carroll Lynch, who is the first of this 
gallery of character actors that we're going to see throughout the rest of the movie. This is a real collection of Jack Harrell Haley and Ted Levine, and you don't want to give them a life Cateus. You don't want to give them all away, but it's a lot of crusty-looking dudes. I, lo- I love it. So yeah, Shutter Island, Ash Cliff. It's this an asylum for the criminally insane on an island. I don't know if those actually exist or not, but that's always in the movies. <laughs> I love it. I love Scorsese's decision in this movie. We can talk a lot about his directorial choices. I love that he didn't craft an original score for this movie. It's entirely based on classical compositions. Yeah, and, a lot of it's from The Shining, too, right? Yeah, and, and the bombastic way that the, the music plays as they enter this prison, and it's shot very much like, in, uh, at, like a concentration camp, which I think is very intentional. I love a lot of Scorsese's touches. We can argue about whether or not it's obvious from the part of the pun Inception, but I love the little detail that Ru- uh, Ruffalo fidgets with his gun when he tries to take it off his belt. Yeah, right. And watching it this time, I've seen this movie about, this is the one of the films that we're covering. This is the one that I've seen the fewest times. I think this was the fourth time that I'd seen it. And this time, especially watching Ruffalo's performance, I had a lot of fun with watching the ways that he plays the, what ends up being the twist with his character. I thought there's all kinds of little things that with, like, with the gun and the way he reacts to some of the other characters and just his general demeanor I think is really kind of fun. I know that Ruffalo talked about before they shot started filming he watched, uh, I can't remember what film it was, but it was some classic noir from the 40s or 50s and I think that the character that he was vibing with was played by Robert Mitchum and he was like, I want this guy to be playing Robert Mitchum. I'm not playing Robert Mitchum. I want this guy I'm playing to be playing Robert Mitchum and I think that that is such a smart and fun choice. And you also like is, the touch of having the, the Zodiac reunion with him and John Carroll Lynch. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And on the other, sort of the, another, well, I guess he's a cop in this one, technically, or he, they think he's a cop in this one, so it's a little bit different. Yeah, and I also want to mention, too, I've been kind of hard on Robert Richardson in this series, and Mike's been on me about that. But I want to say right now, I think the look of this movie is fucking gorgeous. I love the look of this. I love the feel of it, especially when we're getting introduced to everything here. It's a shot from the trailer, but when we're walk, when we're going by that woman and she's telling DiCaprio to be quiet, that, that kind of stuff is really, really well shot. And so this will be the first time I'm really all the way on the Robert Richardson train in the course of this film. Good. Should have happened months ago. Uh, but, <laughs> but, yeah, no, this film is gorgeous. The reds and the the way that just the details come alive in this thing is just, ah, so good. And it's very, the, the, this whole movie is, it, kind of weird thing about it is that kind of sort of like The Departed, how The Departed was kind of Scorsese making a, not quite a B movie, but, you know, something that's kind of down and dirty a little bit. This is him trying to make a noir with a what, an $80 million budget. Yeah, $80 million budget. Um, yeah. Big movie stars and great cinematography and everything like that, which is something that happens every couple of years is a big director is like, I want to do like a 50s noir, but they end up doing it in a way that's so much more grandiose than they made those films because they were usually relatively low-budget affairs when they were making them in the 40s and 50s. Like, Nightmare Alley is a recent example of that in terms of yeah. a director wanting to pay tribute to the noir films of that era and That's doing it with these huge stars and, and this crazy, huge production design and everything like that and and how that shakes out or not. Because sometimes I feel like that could... Like, Nightmare Alley, I don't... I didn't dislike it, really, but that's one where I'm like, I think this is almost too classy to work anywhere. Well, whatever, that's a discussion for another series, I guess. Okay, so the missing patient is Rachel Solando. 
who has escaped. There's a, a the one she was somebody who drowned her three children. She's housed in Shutter Island because everybody there is convicted of some sort of violent crime. They're all violently, uh, criminally, mentally ill. You know, it's a real madhouse. This is not a gentle home for the troubled. And uh, there's a note that's found in her room that says, "Who is 67?" Because there's officially only 66 patients at Shutter Island or Ashcliff. So she's asking, who is 67? And this whole thing is going on in the midst of a huge oncoming storm. So that's kind of influencing the atmosphere of it. Having surrendered their weapons, they now meet the head psychiatrist at the asylum, Dr. Cauley, played by Ben Kingsley, who is gets into some of the personal conflicts that go on between the different doctors among the profession as a whole about how to treat the mentally ill, whether they should be more uh, harsher treatment or it should be more understanding treatment, and he seems to be leaning towards the latter, but he's also played by Ben Kingsley, so we know this guy can be a little sinister sometimes. He was yeah. also Gandhi, so we know he can yeah. be very benevolent. Well, that was years real... and years ago. This is after, of course, many, many villainous roles that Kingsley had taken on. And yeah, again, you guys are absolutely right, and I didn't think about it. And it does change my viewing on the film where we're not supposed to not know what's going on here. But right away, we also know that, yes, there's something going on in that head that we don't know yet. Yeah, and that, and that thought is, why the fuck did you choose the star in Blood Rain? Because <laughs> I swear to God, Ben Kingsley made his own deal with the Hindu devil where he said, I will... I will give you this Oscar for Gandhi, and then you will do nothing but shit for 30 years. And oh, then, he's done a lot of good stuff, but a lot of shit also. Let's be, let's be clear. He's done a lot of crap. Like, it's sort of the Nick Cage thing, where except he didn't have the tax law excuse. But this was kind of the, the comeback for Ben Kingsley. It started right after this, where he started making more consistent movies. Because, you know, he, he'll be in Hugo after this, which is also Scorsese. He joined the Marvel franchise. He went back to the bullshit with Exodus. But seems like he's kind of, he's on the straight and narrow now. But, you know, this is definitely the best role, the mediest role he had had in a very long time. Well, and then and then the fact that this leads to Hugo is I as a real, I think, well, I, I'm not crazy about Hugo, actually, as a film. But I think that Kingsley is so good in that movie. I think he's wonderful in that, but that's uh, that's when we do our Scorsese Ace of Butterfield series in a couple of months. <laughs> so we meet the rest of the staff. There's a lot of orderlies, and there's another doctor who's played by Max von Sydow. It's like, you need someone who's even more... Evil. Uh, yeah, exactly. You need someone who's even more kind of menacing and stuff. So you have Max von Sydow with the German accent. It's <laughs> the, the funny thing about this character that I think is so... Like, there's so many things in this movie that are total red herrings. Because what ends up happening is that the twist means that almost everything that's happened in the film is not real. That it's like almost everything that we think is part of the story is not actually relevant. And so this whole thing with the Max von Sydow character is funny because there's all these hints that he was a Nazi and he's like some sort of Nazi war criminal and stuff. And then the movie ends and you're like, well, there's no, there's no real evidence of that. He's just German. Like, you know, it's just kind of, it's just, he's just as sinister. You know what I mean? But there's, like, all these implications about, like, what his, what his dark history is. But the other doctor who's missing is Dr. Sheehan, who was the doctor for Rachel Solano. He's gone. He's gone away on his vacation. Very inopportune time because uh, they're in the midst of a, of a giant storm and a crazy homicidal uh, patient has escaped. And it's around this time that we start seeing the first of the, the many flashbacks that play Teddy Daniels, where he sees his wife, who's played by Michelle Williams, who's in the movie, by the way. She, I've always liked Michelle Williams. 
I'm always happy when she's in a movie. And I think you're, you're absolutely right about the, the Inception. It's kind of startling how similar these two movies are when you get down to it. It's, yeah, it is. I feel like Great Gatsby, Wolf of Wall Street is another example where it's like, like those movies are very different, obviously, but it's like two kind of similar, in this it's like two guys being haunted by their ghost wives. In that year, if they come out in the same year, it's these, like, New York, nouveau riche millionaire guys. The fact that they come out is just because another movie got delayed. It's like the fact that they come out within a few months of each other is funny. This is a sister movie to Inception a little bit. You were down on Inception. You go with Michelle Williams over Marion Cotillard in, no, in, the, in the realm of dead wives. Well, well, my problem with the Inception, not to get into this whole argument, because I, I just got the cigarette burns <laughs> out of my arm from all the fans that came after me. Cotillard was one of the things I had, I had no qualms about performance so i just gotta leave it at that everybody and to the angry mob that is currently outside my house i have not said anything else about exception i plead the fifth go back go back and listen to that review it's worth listening to (laughs) yeah i plead the fifth and not just because i gave it a five out of ten wow okay all right yeah so his ghost wife played by michelle williams tells him that latest is here and she turns to ash and there's a shot in this i don't know if it's in this i don't know if it's in this scene or not or if it's in in another one of the flashbacks where I think that this is just kind of a fun little thing. I think that Scorsese is directly quoting visually a shot in the movie Sunrise, the Murnau movie. There's all kinds of little things in this movie that I don't know if they're direct references, but this, this is a very influencing movie. It's like Shot Corridor, the Sam Fuller film, which has kind of a similar plot. It's like a lot of different sort of things. Like this is him kind of playing around in this kind of genre sandbox that he sometimes likes to, to get into. And and this is where now we start to see some of the patients, and they're interrogating the patients, and, you know, they're all a little high-strung, understandably. Teddy thinks that they're being coached. He thinks that their answers seem like they've been prepared beforehand and that something is up. And this is where we get a little bit of expo- exposition about who exactly Latus is. Yeah, before we get to that, I want to get to this right now, because this is about... Not only Scorsese, but we're also talking about Leonardo DiCaprio here. How do we feel DiCaprio does? Matt, you mentioned that this is pretty much a, or Mike mentioned that this is like a, a sister companion piece to Inception. I agree with that. I think DiCaprio's pretty good in this. I, I like him as this damaged, well, we think he's a cop now, but as this damaged character, I think he, he excels at characters like this. You guys mentioned Revolutionary Road, a movie I watched one time, haven't gone back to. The whole era of DiCaprio, I agree with Matt in that that era is just tough to get through. Here, I think he's doing it pretty well, and this was a few months before Inception, but I, I think he's pretty good. How does everybody feel that DiCaprio does in this? I, I think he does a good job. I appreciate that his accent is significantly toned down compared to what it was yes. in The Departed. I think everybody's is for that matter. This is not the world of Sam Adams commercials, thankfully, but I I think it's up to par with his work in Scorsese films. He showed up for this. This is definitely after The Departed. This is pretty on par with that. I don't have any issues. I I think it's in his contract that he has to yell and scream at least one point in one of his movies with Scorsese for his quote-unquote Oscar clip. But that notwithstanding, I think he he does a very good job in this. And speaking of movies that this reminded me of, you know, we've talked a lot about older films some of which almost a century old with Caligari. Uh, there's a little movie called Session 9 that came out. Oh, yeah. I, I, I don't know, probably five, six years before this. And they're, they're startlingly similar as well. So if you if you like this movie, I highly recommend you check out Session 9. It's directed by Brad Anderson, who did The Machinist. It's, and that's more of a straight horror movie than this is. And coincidentally, they were both shot in Massachusetts. Interesting. Maybe that's just what Massachusetts does to people. 
you have no psychological idea. terror. <laughs> I think that this is out of the series that we're doing so far. Uh, I think this is the best that DiCaprio's been. <coughs> what? Um, yes, I agree. Yeah. I think I because I think that he is not very good in Gangs of New York. I think he's good in the Aviator, but it's kind of uninspired in the sense that I don't know what is the special extra quality that he's bringing to it. In this and the departed are pretty much on par in terms of what the actual quality of the performance is doing. But in this the film is totally dependent on him in a way that is, the departed wasn't. So I'm just giving that the extra bump here. Mike, I think I think for the first time in this entire series, you and I are on the exact same wavelength. I, I I feel the exact same way. He is very good in this, and I don't think he is trying to overindulge Scorsese here. I think he's trying to do something different, and uh, I I'm the same. I really like him in this a, a lot, actually. I don't overly disagree with shots because I don't know if I've ever heard a single person say this is their favorite performance of the five, much less two people on the same airwave. But for the record, the reason why it works also is there is no scene in this movie that he is not in. He is entirely the focal point, and, and that also should tip you off as an audience member that something is afoot. Because normally in movies like this, if it really was a conspiracy, you would have the quote-unquote reveal scene where all the villains congregate and have a meeting about what's going wrong. Oh, he knows too much, or those kinds of things. So I, I, I appreciate the approach they're all taking. Well, and the other thing is that when I started my most recent rewatch for this one, in some of the early scenes, I remember going, oh, is he over, I've seen this before, but is he overdoing it? And then the sort of magic trick of this movie is that by the end of it, I'm like, no, he was not overdoing it because he is crazy. He's not the person that he thinks he is. And so that is the reason why in these early scenes, he is laying it on thick in terms of being kind of aggro to everybody and like yeah. sweating and everything like that. Because he's a complete phony. I mean, he's a, he doesn't realize he's a phony, but he's a complete phony. And then the scenes where he's with Michelle Williams and like in his sort of flashback mode, he is, has a very different mode where he's disturbed still, but it's more subdued in a way. And I'm like, it's all of a piece with each other. It's all the sides of this character coming together. That's where I land on him in this one. And it is, and it, it is interesting to compare his performance in this to his performance in Inception, which again, it's a similar character, but that's a much more kind of like, again, not to just turn it to Inception, but like that's a much more kind of, I don't want to say cold, but you know, kind of, icy Nolan style performance. This is where we find out the whole backstory that he has, or some of the backstory that he has, where there was a man named Andrew Latis. He burned down the apartment building that Teddy and his wife lived in and it killed his wife. And he was an arsonist. He was a crazy firebug, as, as they put it. And that's why he's being haunted by this vision of his wife. And also we see another vision, which is that he was a soldier during World War II. Oh, yeah, this whole thing's been said in the 50s. But I don't think I've mentioned that. Yeah, it's a period piece. Yes, yes. It would be great, though, if just at the end of the movie he pulled out an iPhone. If they did, like, the village where yeah. it works out that it's actually modern day, I would love <laughs> that, and I would also hate it with a passion. So, yeah, so during World War II, he was one of the soldiers who liberated a concentration camp, and they were involved in executing all the guards just kind of on the spot, just shooting them, and uh, that's also part of his backstory, and I think this is where we get the first kind of idea of what the danger afoot might be, at least according to Teddy, because he starts to tell his partner Chuck that he thinks that there is human experimentation going on uh, at Shutter Island that's being kept secret, that maybe Rachel Solando has something to do with it, 
and that he tells another story. There is a lot of backstory in this. He tells another story about a guy named George Noyce who basically claims that he was experimented on as a volunteer in an experiment at Shutter Island, and then he was so troubled by it that he ended up killing somebody and then went on trial, and he said, whatever you do, don't send me back to Shutter Island. So that's how terrible it is here. And he thinks Teddy has this whole backstory that he thinks, or that his whole theory that he thinks that there's some sort of conspiracy going on involving secret human experimentation that's being covered up. Of course, Max von Sydow is part of it. Of course, Mick Kingsley's part of it. This missing doctor probably has something to do with it. Rich Solando probably knows what's going on. There are threads to pull. And the, but this is where the storm gets really, really bad. Their clothes are ruined, so they have to wear orderly clothes. And all throughout the film, he keeps smoking cigarettes. I mean, it's the 50s, so he's chain-smoking, and he's taking the water, and he's got the migraines, so they're giving him aspirin. So this might play some part later. Wink, wink. Okay. And can I just say that I do love the mood that Scorsese is setting here. I really do. I just don't like the mystery that's building here, which, according to you guys, isn't supposed to be a mystery. But that's the way I was looking at it coming into my first viewing and this viewing. I haven't seen this movie too many times like you guys. I've seen it maybe three times in my life. So this was the fourth and fifth time I watched it for this. And... I was noticing the mood more than I was noticing how much I was just not liking what was building here. Yeah, I think that's what he's really interested in here. And this, I also I want to say a, a comment on the production design here with the sets and everything like that. This movie is so, like, the sets in the movie are incredible. The, uh, what is it, Ward C, where it's got the yeah. stairs and everything like that and the cages. The, the way that that was all built, all pra- I mean, all practically built and everything like that, the mausoleum that they are hiding out yes. in and have the conversation, really impressive. And this is where they find out that, turns out, Rachel Solando's been found. So there you go. No no need to keep searching for her. This is Emily Mortimer playing Rachel Solando. And it seems like everything's hunky-dory, right? I mean, that's what Dr. Cawley says. But it's at this point that Teddy, he collapses, they give him some pills, and he wakes up. Well, before he wakes up, he has yet another vision, a lot of visions, where Elias Cateus, who looks like the bald Robert De Niro. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. He looks like even fucking Frankenstein with the stitches in his face and everything like that. He I, does. I, and you know what? And Matt and I recorded a set of podcasts that will never see the light of day, where Cateus was in the, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies. But yeah, he's very creepy, very effective in this film. He is, yeah. I wonder if that, it can't have been intentional, but, I mean, because I don't think that well, the like, he should look like Frankenstein in the Kenneth Branagh film. No, but the joke has always been that he bears a resemblance to Robert De Niro. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's been joked about forever, but uh, as far as these cameo roles, I like that they're basically one-scene bits. Yes. Because you satisfy both camps. If they're purely hallucinogenic, which this one is, it's all the more effective because he looks cartoonishly evil. But then you get Jackie O'Haley has a part later on where that is in the real world, but it's in the fabrication of the story that has yet to fully devolve. So the trailers are a bit misleading because it makes it seem like they have prominent roles, but they are very much cameos. I think in a world like this giant prison, it doesn't make sense for you to keep seeing the same people over and over. Right, yeah, yeah. And also because everybody, all of these people that we keep seeing, like Jack Girl Haley and, and Elias Case, they're actually just reflections of DiCaprio's character. Right. So it makes sense that they're not interacting because he is just looking at them like he's when he's looking at the mirror. It's just him looking at his own reflection. So it's like one at a time because he's looking at these different sides of himself as he's going through this journey. And the journey also that he takes that they mirror with his clothing where he starts off He's got the full 50s cop, trench coat, hat, everything like that, gear. But he has to give up his gun. 
Okay, so he gives up his gun, but he's still got the rest of that. And then after a while, he closed the room, so he has to wear the orderly clothes. So he doesn't have that same kind of authority that he had when he was the cop. And then by the end of it, spoiler alert, he's not an orderly anymore. Now he's a patient. So it's like the further kind of devolution of his character. As he goes further and further into his own psyche, he becomes more and more of his true self. And, yeah. And this, I believe, is the point where the electricity goes out at the electricity goes out at the asylum. So all of the electronic uh, security systems that they have have failed, and so Ward C, which is where they house the most dangerous and disturbed of the patients, they're potentially out. And so Teddy goes to investigate what's going on there, and this is where he sees Jack Earl Haley, who is playing uh, George Noyce, who is the guy yes. who was mentioning earlier. Yeah, and Jackie O'Haley, people forget, he had a moment around this he really time. Did. He, yeah. he had an Oscar nomination for just a, wow, just a movie I watched one time and will never watch again called Little Children. Yeah, uh, yeah that's, like Todd, that's like Todd Haynes' happiness. Oh, my God. Where you will, you will see it once and you will never watch it again. It's fucking brutal. And he was three months away from doing the role that me and Matt love him in, which was Freddy Krueger. And he had done uh, Watchmen as well. So he, he was really, really having a moment, and I was looking forward to seeing him in this. And... I guess he's fine. He's not in it enough for him to actually have any impact one way or the other with me. And it's it's a weird role because the character is he is creepy, which is why you cast Jack Earl Haley. Yes, <laughs> but he's also but the exception of Kelly Leak as bad, in Bad News Bears, he's been creepy in pretty much every other thing. Yes, yes. this is why you cast modern Jack Earl Haley. Yes, but he's also kind of sympathetic because he has this backstory where he was being experimented on and stuff, and he he's not a, a total homicidal psycho like Elias Kateas. So I think that's kind of interesting because it's a, a chance for Jackie Riley to be both creepy, extremely creepy, and also kind of, he's playing kind of a, a victim in some way. He's been sort of brutalized, which comes into play. I didn't write down what his exact quote was, but he's, he's telling Teddy, he's like, you did this to me, and so Teddy feels guilt about everything that has happened, which is definitely understands, and he knows everything about what's happened to him so far, right? He knows he has a full and active and working functional memory. He's also having visions at this time of two children covered in blood, which is a bad thing. If you're having visions, uh, dear listener, of uh, two children who are walking around covered in blood, I suggest doing something about that, seeking professional help. Do not just try and go find somebody that you have a vendetta against. <laughs> Seek out help, please. Is this Scorsese trying to do The Shining here? Because Matt and I reviewed The Shining last year, and you know we have two little girls there who are kind of prominent in the very scary, effective parts of that film. And I kind of feel like that Scorsese is trying to channel that here. It's complete with the music. I, I mentioned earlier that a lot of the beats from this score are from that original Shining score, which wasn't an original score itself. So right. everything, everything's pulling from each other. But I, I kind of feel like Scorsese is trying to do that a little bit here. Yeah, this is one of the movies in Scorsese's entire catalog where he really wears his cinematic influences on his sleeve. A lot of times they're there. It's definitively a Martin Scorsese picture at the end of the day. This is a conglomerate of a lot of other people. Later on, there's a scene with Ted Levine when they're in the car. He does the Hitchcock rear projection yeah, uh, that yeah. he, he was famous for. It looks as, you know, it looks oh, like yeah. it did at that time. Uh-huh. So I, I don't view it being so much of The Shining as a critique, but you're right. There are some directorial flourishes that he's pulling for Kubrick hard. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I can absolutely see that. I didn't make that explicit connection, but yeah, I can totally, I can totally buy that. And then this is where he basically, after he has some sort of confrontation with George Noyce in Ward C, he ends up finding somebody else, not on Ward C, but in the rocks on the side of the island. And it's 
Who else but Rachel Solando? Emily Mortimer? No, it's Patricia Clarkson, Rachel Solando, the real Rachel Solando. Speaking of people we just talked about, Garrett, from our Carrie retrospective. Yes. <laughs> it all More comes King. together, everybody. More King. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, there's some De Palma in this movie, too, I think, a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. And she says to him that she was not a patient at Shutter Island, but she was a doctor, psychiatrist, a renowned psychiatrist who found out that they were experimenting on people and that they were doing experiments to try and figure out mind control and that they were building on Nazi science and that they were experimenting on people and doing lobotomies in the lighthouse of the island and that she was opposed to all this stuff. And when she tried to... She was, uh, she was yeah. an insider. She was. She was the Je- Dr. Jeffrey Wigand, but she was Dr. Rachel Solanda. And she, she says that when she tried to blow the whistle, they had her declared crazy and they locked her up. And he's close to cracking the whole kind of conspiracy that he actually can't do it because they've got too much control. That she, if she was a respected doctor and they could do it to her, they can do it to him to have him declared crazy and locked away. And she also points out that like, oh, you've been smoking the cigarettes they've been giving you. You've been eating the food and drinking the drinks that they give you. And you've been taking the aspirin. They can do things with those. They can drug you. They can put medication in there that can make you seem crazy and then the time comes and they can have you declared crazy. So he's becoming increasingly kind of flustered and panicked by all this and she really emphasizes the lighthouse which is where they do the experimental neurosurgeries. We don't see the light, we see the lighthouse, we don't see inside of it. They're, They're really sort of building it up and he returns to the asylum and he confronts Dr. Colley. Dr. Colley tells him, well, he asks him where his partner is and he says, well, you came alone. How could that be possible? But uh, Teddy uh, plays along, says, oh, yeah, you're right. I have no partner because Chuck has seemingly disappeared. But what's going on? It's very mysterious. Thinks that must be the tie. It must have been that uh, Chuck was taken prisoner himself and maybe even taken up to the lighthouse. So he's trying to get into the lighthouse. He has this altercation with Max von Sydow. Oh, I forgot to mention. uh, What about the fucking scene with Ted Levine? How good is that shit? I thought that was great. Uh, I love that fucking shit. Ted Levine coming in for one scene, just saying a bunch of complete nonsense, and then leaving. Love it. Especially since they've been building him up the whole movie as like, oh, the warden says this, the warden. I'm not the warden. The three of us have reviewed Ted Levine in the past sure. at Buffalo Bill and uh, Silence of the Lambs, and he's just as good here. But again, it's too small a role to have any kind of real impact on me, but the small amount of time he's here, I do like him. I, I wish he was here more, actually. Well, speaking of The Shining, this is the equivalent of the guy in the bear suit where it comes out of nowhere. When he Correct. says, if I yeah. bit your eye off, what would you do? Yeah, I wrote down a couple. He has a whole like monologue, like Cormac fucking McCarthy monologue about this shit. So I didn't yes. write the whole thing down, but I wrote down a couple choice quotes. God loves violence. There is no moral order. You're as violent as they come. Some of the air of menace that's going on here is not, again, not a very pleasant place to be. There's the altercation with Dr. Nering involving uh, hiding a syringe. And Max von has got this, again, it is a very, it is a pretty small role for such a legend. He encounters Dr. Nering. Nering's got a syringe. And he says, when you see a monster, you must stop it. But who would have thought Leonardo DiCaprio gets the old switcheroo on 80-year-old Max von Sydow and manages to overpower him and sedates him with the syringe. And he swims out to the lighthouse. All of this is going on. He's having these flashbacks and these visions of Michelle Williams again. And he breaks in to the lighthouse, expecting, hoping to find Chuck. And instead, who does he find but Dr. Colley sitting at a desk with a chalkboard behind him 
and a file in front of him, and everyone buckle yourselves in because this is the oh this boy. is the scene. Yeah. This is this the, is the psycho scene. Yeah, this is the psycho scene. This is also the scene. Is this, is this also when her ash disintegrates in his hands or something? I remember that shot being really really no, prominent was, in the trailer. That was earlier in the movie. That, that was, was earlier. Part. Yeah, I remember that shot being huge part of the marketing of this film. And I do remember, in the lead-up to this, Michelle Williams was getting interviewed. This was two years after the death of Heath Ledger. And she said it was really cathartic for her to do a role like this around that time that she was going through the uh, mourning process of father of her children. So I love Michelle Williams like you guys. I love her, love her and everything. But for what she has in this and the fact that she is never really in the modern time of this film, quote-unquote, I, I think she does really well in this movie. But it's like I'm making a joke because I'm not making a joke. She is one of the saddest kind of movie actors that there is in terms of her performances. Yeah. I mean, this in Manchester by the Sea and all kinds of stuff. I mean, she just Broke really balanced kind of stuff. Broke, oh, Brokeback Mountain, of course. Yeah, she just really is like just brings that kind of melancholic quality to almost all of her performances. And it's really, it's, I mean, I'm sure it's in many ways based on real feelings and it's something that feels very real and potent and I think that's what makes this role work because I feel like if you played this character as more of like a phantom you know what I mean as more of like a, a kind of spooky kind of character I don't think that that works at all if you play her as like a femme fatale I don't think that works at all and that really is going to play into what happens in sort of the final flashbacks correct so this is the whole revel. first of all he tells him that gun that he has is not loaded and Teddy says to him, he says, I know what's going on. I know the conspiracies here. You've been drugging me. You've been trying to make me think I'm insane. And Dr. Colley goes, no, we've not been giving you narcotics. In fact, you've been off your narcotic for the past several days. And that's why you're having these physical uh, episodes is because that's, that's the withdrawal process. You, in fact, you are the 67th patient here. You are not a, a U.S. Marshal. You've been a patient here for the last two years. And not only that, you're Andrew Latus. You are the guy that you think of as this villain who burned down your home and killed your wife. That guy doesn't exist other than that he is you. That is literally your name, as he explains with the chalkboard. Now, I think this movie's very good, and I think that the twist, it's based on an emotional kind of truth. It's totally preposterous. It's very preposterous. The fact that they're letting this guy reenact this over and over to try to help him what, get over the death of his family? I find this to be so preposterous. It, it, it hurts my feelings about the movie, honestly. I think this plot is ridiculous. I love the mood of the movie, but once we get to the revelation, I'm like, really? I understood it was all in his head, but you're trying to tell me that the doctors endorsed giving him these guns and letting him walk around this island trying to figure this? No. Well, no, as no. we find out, he does not have a gun. Uh, it's a toy. Uh, it's, 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 like a toy the, it's a toy, but still, not- though. Well, I can understand your reaction. I really can't. I think that basically, I mean, I, I mentioned Vertigo before. Vertigo is the reference point I would go to with this because the plot to Vertigo is probably uh, maybe even more ridiculous than the plot. Or, you know, I mean, there, it's really, it, the, the plot of Vertigo is an absolutely insane kind of the twist of that makes no actual sense in terms of logical sense. I think Chuck Klosterman, the writer, described the plot of Vertigo, that the villain's plot, it would be easier if he had decided simply to murder every person he'd ever met. That's his, like, side of how crazy that plot line is. And I think, but that movie, it works because of the strength of the visuals and the kind of emotional truth of it. You know what I mean? The, the fact that it doesn't make logical sense, but it's not, it, it's meant to reflect who this guy is and what's the emotional journey that he's going on. And I think the same thing works here. The, the plot is completely ridiculous, but 
you either go with it or you don't. And this is one where I really, if someone, they can't go with it, I, I get it. It does make emotional sense because it's just all about, rather than the actual plot, it's about the emotional journey that this guy is going on. So the fact that he is part of this completely ridiculous kind of setup is just a reflection of how deep his own kind of insanity runs and, and how far he has to go in order to try and overcome that. But I also get why it would be a, a bridge too far for some people. And I think that the, when it's the literal anagrams on the chalkboard, I'm like, that's a little too on the nose or something like that to have literally Ben Kingsley stand up to a chalkboard and go, okay, so if yeah. you notice here, these yeah. names are anagrams. I feel like that would probably work better in a book. It being in yeah, a movie is a little, yeah, okay. Anna White come out of nowhere and do like Wheel of Fortune where he makes him guess all the different letters and there's a giant equal sign. This is the example of a visual shorthand not doing its job. But that notwithstanding, you know, obviously Garrett, you don't like this. I see where you're coming from, but I view this as a, because this is, this movie is so pulpy as more than an orange tree in Miami. This purely unorthodox, and the fact that it's a period piece and science was still formative, I'm willing to give it leniency because of how experimental and fantastical it is, because I'm viewing it as breakthrough in science in this kind of world. That aside, I think this is one of the examples of what works in a book does not always translate to film when you get these kind of reveals and you have to find a way to convert it using exposition, because that's really your only tool. A psycho has this problem, where the doctor just comes out and talks for five minutes over discussing the you know the psychosis of the character here. It's on that level, but it works. I don't have any qualms with how it's delivered outside of just some of the, the visual cues that he, he utilizes. And I like the way that Kingsley plays it. I think that what he does in this film is pretty interesting, because he has to seem sinister without actually doing sinister stuff, really, because when you think about it, he's actually, I mean, he's reckless based on what the actual thing that he has him do it, but he's, like, overly understanding. He's so empathetic to this patient that he lets him do all this and stuff like that because he's trying to help him and help him deal with his illness and everything like that. He's actually a really nice guy, but he seems yeah. sinister. It's just this great kind of magic trick that's kind of going on. He seems sinister, but that's just because of how he's moving and talking more than like what he's actually doing. And I think, and then here he's really trying to be patient with him. I think he plays it really well. And, and this is where that performance really kind of comes together. And I think you can see why Scorsese wanted to work with him again in Hugo, which also has a similar kind of arc where you think he's not sinister, but you think he's kind of, it's kind of like the old man in Home Alone plot line, which is the only time I'll compare Home Alone to Scorsese. Beautiful. Anyway, anyway. Nice Home Alone comparison, sir. (laughs) He's the real Andrew Latest, and he's there because he killed his wife after she drowned their children, and he killed her, and she was mentally ill and he killed her after she had done that but he had a break from reality because of that he couldn't stand the thought of having killed his own wife or having ignored her own illness up to the point that she killed their children that he has had this whole breakdown where he thinks that somebody else is guilty of it he thinks that his wife was killed by somebody else he thinks he's still a u.s marshal which he was at the time and we get the flashback to that it's very kind of grimly played out flashback, and we find out that this whole kind of past two days, this whole, quote, investigation, unquote, was actually basically a giant role play, which is, I think he actually says it was a role play, which is very... Oh, my God. It's so preposterous. It's an attempt to have him walk through the circumstance of trying to investigate this situation and to eventually come to the realization of who he actually is, and then he goes, where's... He wants to know where Chuck is, and then Mark Ruffalo comes in, and it turns out he is not... 
Fact's partner. He's, in fact, the missing Dr. Sheehan, who was his therapist the entire time and has been pretending to be his U.S. Marshal's partner. And that's, again, to tie, tie back to what we were talking about earlier, is the kind of thing that locks that performance into place, where you, you watch it the second, third, or fourth time, and you go, oh, yeah, he's actually not a cop. He's, like, really, he's, like, not good at it either. And there's a really great moment, actually, early on, where they're interrogating the different patients, and DiCaprio's asking her about Dr. Sheehan. He's like, tell me about Dr. Sheehan, what's Dr. Sheehan like? And she's like, well, you know, he's pretty easy on the eyes. And then when it does the reverse shot to DiCaprio and Ruffalo sitting in a two-shot, Side by side, Ruffalo has this look on his face like, all right, yeah, I'm a little lazy on the eyes. He has this great kind of smile on his face, but he's, like, trying to hide it. It's really good. And he also, in that scene, gets up to get her water, which I assume he also laced with medication. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. And there's another moment where DiCaprio starts kind of getting physical with one of the patients and, and getting kind of hostile. And Ruffalo, like, breaks it up immediately. He gets very immediately diffusing the situation, de-escalating the violence, because he's the doctor of the situation. A lot of really smart stuff like that, and which is why I think that there's reasons to rewatch this, knowing the twist and everything like that. And it's also where there's the moment where he, he finds out that his, his, his gun is fake, too, which is kind of a funny thing. I don't know if you guys watched Key and Peele. Yeah, uh, I have. I haven't seen all of it, but what I've seen is very entertaining. There's a great, very short sketch where it's a bunch of people... And they're like having a cookout and this car pulls up and it's Jordan Peele. And he looks like it's, he looks kind of looks like an early 90s Boys in the Hood, Menace Society era gangster in a car looking kind of intimidating. And he pulls out a gun and everyone thinks he's going to do a drive by. And then he goes, no, fake ass gangster. And then you cut back to the car and it turns out he's not actually driving the car. He's got a cardboard cutout. That he's been carrying with him, who's like just walking, and then he pulls out his gun, and it's made out of black licorice, and he takes a bite from it, and, <laughs> and Keegan Michael Key's like, "Guys out here eating his gun." That's basically what the scene is. <laughs> he's not really the person that he thinks he is. He's been hallucinating a lot of the stuff. A lot of stuff is role play. He has a complete kind of meltdown. He faints, but when he wakes up, he has accepted or seemingly, has accepted the truth of who he was. He says that he killed his wife, that he's anti latest, and that he understands now. And Dr. Colley says this is good, but he's worried because he'd previously gotten to that realization before, but then regressed. And he says that he's been, as a prisoner, as a patient, too violent, and that if he regresses again, that they're going to have to lobotomize him, and this is his last chance. And then we get to the next uh, and final scene of the movie, where DiCaprio is meeting with Ruffalo, Dr. Ruffalo, Dr. Sheehan, but he calls him Chuck, acts like he's still his partner, says, how are we going to get out of this island, acts like he's still the tough U.S. Marshal who's on the case. And Sheehan gives a little verbal nod to Dr. Cauley and to the other doctors and the warden, and they bring him off to the lighthouse to be lobotomized, but before he does, he says the last thing, and he asks his doctor slash partner, he says, would it be worse to live as a monster or to die as a good man? And then he walks off, and then the last shot, I believe, is a shot of the lighthouse, and we hear the same sound, the sort of combination of foghorn and music that we heard at the beginning of the film. And we fade to black, directed by Martin Scorsese. And that is Shutter Island. What do you guys think of the ending? It's wrapped up. I don't think we've mentioned Ruffalo enough here. I think he's pretty good here. I think he makes his case to be Bruce Banner here very well, which we'll see in later films that he's in. I think the wrap-up 
It's an interesting choice to make it a quiet wrap-up, as is we just find out that he hasn't learned a goddamn thing, and he's this cycle is just going to keep going. Because I have a different interpretation of the end here, but I, it is deliberately ambiguous. Yeah, um, yeah, but it's, this is much more lenient in the he is conscientiously choosing to get lobotomized because he can't live with it anymore than it is in the book. The book is very 50-50 because it's, it's just text. DiCaprio does some very subtle movements in this scene to indicate my theory. So I, I think both are valid, but I like that Scorsese chose a lane. Yeah, and it is a quiet ending, which is an interesting twist. You know, the tone of this movie is pretty interesting. It's, you know, it's a kind of noir. The film in his filmography that it's the most similar to, I think, is Cape Fear in terms of visuals and style. But they're very different movies because Cape Fear is so kind of heated. This kind of alternates between heated and icy. It's kind of like the killing. It's like the she drowned the kids, and then but he remembers it as a house burning down. So it's like fire and water. Water. That's kind of the tonal sort of back and forth that is sort of going on here, and it goes on with the visuals too, because most of the film is very kind of icy colored and blues, cool colors and stuff like that. A lot of grays, but then you have especially in the visions and the flashbacks, a lot of red, just like bright kind of blood red. And that is sort of what's the tone that he's doing with this one. You know, I have not revisited. I like this movie a lot. And I was big on it, especially at the time. I remember I saw it in theaters. This was not the first Scorsese film I saw in theaters because I previously had seen Shine a Light, which was his Rolling Stones concert movie. That was the first Scorsese movie I saw in theaters. And I remember this being kind of, I was in high school when this came out. I remember this being a movie that people were like talking about that Monday in downtime between classes and stuff like that, just because it's that kind of thing. And this was a successful movie at the box office, and it got mostly good reviews. It didn't get rapturous rave reviews for the most part. And it was, I think at the time, his most successful film at the box office. And it was kind of a surprise, I think, too. I I don't know what people were expecting. I think maybe people thought it was going to be really bad because it got punted to February. But I think that actually helped with the expectations that people had a little bit of it. Because I think if people were expecting a masterpiece, they would be disappointed. But if they were expecting a attempt to do a B-movie with an A-movie budget, then I think they would be a lot more pleasantly surprised, and I think they were. And I think that it's an interesting film. I, I don't want to jump straight into the into our, like, you know, final judgments just yet, although maybe we should, but it's an odd film. I have not revisited as much as some of his other films, and I think that's because it's not an incredibly fun film. It's pretty grim. Not that you necessarily expect a noir to not be grim, but it is very kind of, not self-serious, but it is pretty somberly tough. And whether or not you think that works, I think, goes along with some other things. And whether or not that you think that that works with the various, I mean, what we've been talking about with twist and with whether it's predictable or not, whether it's preposterous or not, you know, how, how we go along with that and everything like that. It's an interesting film. Final judgments, I guess. Now, Garrett, scale of one to ten, what are you thinking of Shutter Island? This was tough. This is a really, really tough scoring for me. The toughest I've had since we started the, this series. I think it's been plainly obvious that I've been lesser on it than you two have. At the same time, again, I'll go back to what I said at the beginning of this podcast. I find it to be a very curious choice that Martin Scorsese follow up his big Oscar-winning film with the star of that film in a movie that is pretty much just a tribute to all things that he loved in old Hollywood. Noir old horror films. When they go into Shutter Island, it's very King Kong-ish the way they enter those doors. This is Scorsese paying tribute to what he loves. And I think it is rich in colors. There's very good filmmaking at play. But I don't think there's a really good film going on here. I will say, I think DiCaprio is the best we've seen. Again, 
in the four collaborations we've seen so far. I think he's tremendous, even though he will be playing the same role a few months later in Inception. That's not a deterrent for me. But there's just too much at the end of this movie that brings it down a whole level for me. Once Scorsese stops playing the mood piece, once he stops making it all about the mood of where DiCaprio and Ruffalo are going, the movie just kind of takes a die for me, and it, it turns into a real revelation of plot that I can't bite into it as much as they try getting me to chew it. It's a very nice-looking film, but it's not great. So I'll go 6 on 10. I think it's good enough to warrant a 6, but this is not something I would follow an Oscar-winning film with. And I, and I think that Scorsese's heart wasn't in this. I think he's kind of on autopilot here. I do think, with the exception of paying tributes, the tributes that I mentioned, I don't think his heart is really into the production of this film. And it shows. So, yeah, 6 on 10 for me. I cannot disagree with every word that my co-host has said anymore. I think this is a movie that is exactly the kind of movie I would expect Scorsese to make after his Oscar, because this is entirely about paying tribute to what he likes. I don't think someone in good conscience with as much power as he has would have phoned something in, because with the exception of your star, it's not a known property, it's not a superhero movie, it's not a straight horror movie, and with the February release date, there was a lot going against it. So I do believe that I see Scorsese in this with all the touches. I haven't even mentioned the Mario Bava touches. There's some hammer in here. He's really paying a love letter in the same way that Tarantino does. I think this is kind of his Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, except I like this considerably more, because it's all about paying tribute to a certain style and a certain time period, while also allowing him to really flex his muscles as a director, which he, I'm not going to say he didn't do in The Departed, but this is a big step as far as him really tackling some different stuff. Because unlike Cape Fear, that is a movie that is entirely a criticism of slasher movies and is very, very operatic. Any movie that has Robert De Niro drowning while screaming in native tongues, you can't take seriously. I think this movie you can take seriously, provided that you realize that it's, it's heightened. This is not meant to be entirely our reality, because this premise is so absurd with the role-play component. But all that being said, if you're a fan of movies like Session 9, or hell, even if you like Brazil, which kind of has a similar ending. I think you owe it to yourself to check this out. This would be, of the four, this is my second favorite that we've discussed. So I'm going uh, a very strong 8 on 10 for Shutter Island. Yeah, and can I say, Mike, before you go, I would see the movie we review next week to be the movie he would follow an Oscar-winning film with, not this one. Interesting. Interesting. I, I'm very much looking forward to that conversation next week. For me, you know, I, I said a lot of my kind of thoughts of the film in general a few minutes ago. I'll just build on that and say that I think that this is a film where I don't revisit it as much as some of the other Scorsese films, but I do really like it. And I think that it's not made by somebody who's on autopilot. I definitely don't think it's the case. I don't think there's any Scorsese film that's made on autopilot. I do think there's less of a personal animus that's kind of driving him with this one. I think it's more him having some ideas of what he'd like to experiment with and play around with. And I think that this is watching somebody really at the top of their craft with a cinematographer who's at the top of his craft and an editor and a great collection of actors, both stars and character actors. And they're doing something really, and the production design, again, as I mentioned, is just incredible. And doing all of this in service of not the best 
material that Scorsese's ever worked with. And it's an A-list attempt to do a B picture, but not as successful as that attempt with The Departed, but more so, I think, than some other examples of major filmmakers doing that. I mentioned Nightmare Alley. That's just been on my, that movie's just been on my mind lately. I, I don't, I don't mean that to point fingers too much at it, but just as an example. And, you know, I really like a film where I do see why this would be too kind of preposterous or just too much in that sense for a lot of people to vibe with. I can't, I do totally get that. I think for me though, this falls in that category of, I really love the movie Jacob's Ladder. And that's also a movie where oh, yes. the twist is pretty, maybe it wasn't in 1990, but I think at this point when you see it, it's pretty predictable. And yet the sort of emotional truth of it, the symbolic truth of it, I think is what gives it that kind of strength. I don't revisit this one as much as some of the other films in this series. So I'm not going to say it's as good as The Aviator or as The Departed. I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10. I still think it's really good. And I definitely recommend it. And I am glad that I rewatched it. And I really look forward to next week's show, too. I can say that. Yeah, next week is going to be curious. I remember next week's movie getting a... Man, there was no in-between with next week's movie. With this one, I was really like, okay, you could go either way, but I was leaning more towards the middle than not. Next week's movie, I have noticed that people either love it or they just completely disdain it. And I have to say, I haven't read any of the books. I, I know a lot about the man, Jordan Belfort, that we'll be talking about, but I haven't read any of the autobiographies or anything, which I'll probably try doing sometime this week. I'll at least try to get some excerpts or something and go through them, but... Yeah, I'm really curious to talk about Wolf of Wall Street next week because I did have one of those extreme reactions, which we'll talk about next week. Ooh, interesting. Matt, what do you remember about next week's movie? I remember seeing it Christmas Day. I had a buddy, my buddy Sean, who I used to go to the movies with every Christmas. We'd do two movies in a row. This was a double feature with American Hustle, which means I spent almost six hours in a movie theater combined (laughs) because, yeah, for a movie all about excess, boy, it's got one hell of a runtime. Which one was first? We saw Wolf of Wall Street first, because I... Oh, that's I, I, a good I, No, because I, I have not to talk about the movies, but <laughs> would I rather see a Martin Scorsese movie or a David O. Russell movie? Hmm. I think I'll go with the Scorsese movie first. Sure, sure. Well, okay, I, I, we won't jump ahead too much, but okay, so today was our Valentine's Day movie. Next week will be our Christmas movie. Um, <laughs> there you go. I remember seeing it on Christmas Day. I was back in my hometown, which is a kind of sleepy little small town in Kentucky, which has one movie theater. And I remember going to see it and being about 10 minutes into it, being amazed that the theater had not been shut down by the authorities. Um, (laughs) I will say that much. And that is where I will leave that. Next week's movie will be the last one of the series, and I've had harsh disagreements with Mike. I've had harsh disagreements with Matt. So who am I going to alienate next week? I guess we'll find find that out. Who who is number four? Yeah. There's a fourth fourth host. All right. Until next week, which would be worse, to live as a monster or to die as a podcaster. You're not one for tears, and, well, neither am I. So it's best to come out with it. Let's be honest, it's all been a grand adventure, but it couldn't possibly last. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast, exclusively on Percolated Media. Well done.
Join us next week for an entirely new review. Which would be worse? To live as a monster or to die as a good man? And if you would be so kind, please take a moment to give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others to find and discover these podcasts. I got this rat, this annoying, cheating fucking rat. The Three Men and a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Don't tell me I can't do it. Don't tell me it can't be done. Edited by Garrett. That's a sorry-looking pelf. Voiceovers by Adam. This is Howard Hughes. Howard and I were just discussing how he wants me to pull a camera out of my ass. Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. Hunt the flesh, kill the flesh, eat the flesh, that's the uh, male sex all over. of the future the way of the future the way of the future the way of the future mm-hmm. hello yeah there you are you can hear me you can hear me fine yes i can okay, hear you great. just good great 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 how you doing sir i'm doing all right i hear a weird sound is that uh, we're doing more code. We're, we're stuck in a bunker. Okay, okay. I was wondering what that was. Are doing bubble wrap? I don't know. <laughs> bubble wrap. That would be interesting. And I'm about ready to do a shot before we get going here. My uh, sure beautiful girlfriend's preparing a shot for me. So. Make sure you don't take any aspirin with it, though. No. Nope. No aspirin. You okay? Me? Yeah, you. I'm fine. Why? Do I sound sick or something? No, 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 no. I said don't take any aspirin. I'm like, okay, do you need aspirin? Are you no, okay? No, no, no. It was my attempt to... Uh, Went over his head. 
Yeah, uh, well, it's just a reference to the movie, but then again, I think we all watched Oh, like, oh, God, it's been so long like, since we watched it, I forgot. I know, exactly. I, I just watched it 20 about. minutes ago. Okay, oh, okay, sweet. okay, got it. All right, hold well, on, I, guys. What are we drinking to? Going live. Going live, there you go. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Actually, I watched it about a week ago. And that was my third time in the course of preparing for this podcast, which has been a long time in the making. So I'm all set to go whenever you guys are. Mike, you ready? Okay. Yep, I'm ready. You got your notes all yeah, well prepared? I've got he's, my notes uh, ready. He's leaning the shindig. He is leaning it. Hold on. Let me make sure. Uh, Matt, do you have a backup going, sir? Yeah, it's going. Okay. Let me make sure I got everything going. All right. Um, Matt, say testing, please. Testing, testing. Perfect. All right. Hit I'm patient all... zero. Uh, <laughs> We're good to go. Oh, no, patient 67. That's what I should There say. you go. Mike, you are leading this, sir, so whenever you're ready. Mm-hmm. Flight detour. What's the craziest Valentine's Day movie you've ever seen? Like, what's the is, – is this is, – do you have one? Because I can top it. Whatever you're about to say, I'm about to top it. Yeah. Th- th- this is not – I'm pretty sure – I cannot top whatever it is you're going to say, so just just go ahead, because this, this is the only one I can think of. So I was dating this woman, and uh, this was around the time we, we were we, – we didn't date very long, but it was Valentine's Day, and she goes, oh, I really want to see this movie. And I was like, wow. okay, sure, I love, I love movies. No, no, it's not this movie. She's like, I oh. really want to see this certain movie. And I was like, okay, yeah, I love movies. Uh, and she's like, yeah, Son of Saul, have you heard of it? Oh now, God. yes, uh, not not exactly a Valentine's Day uh, picture. I don't know if anyone has seen it, but it's uh, it's oh uh, a, a very very uh, harrowing, uh, sober uh, uh, Hungarian Holocaust movie. Uh, so very odd choice on her part. Um, but anyways, that's always I I have a great. That's like I, like I said, I, I pretty much if anybody has oh crazy date movie thing, I can top that. I mean, there's kind of a connection between Son of Saul and Shutter Island once we get into the plot of this movie. Oh, sure, sure, sure. So I don't think it's that crazy then. Mm -hmm. Like Nightmare Alley, I I didn't dislike it really, but that's one where I'm like, I think this is almost too classy to work anywhere. Well, whatever, that's a discussion for another series, I guess. Yeah, when we do tomorrow, we'll we'll definitely talk about that movie because I – it was on my top ten of last year. If it was oh, okay. I still wish they'd release it in black and white, though, on the Blu-ray release. Oh, really? It's not on the Blu-ray? No, it's. I looked at the features listing on the 4K, and it's not listed, so hopefully it's a misdirect. Well, because... you'll have to get the gray-ray. Yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Great one. <laughs> this is the one that finally broke me. <laughs> Okay, so, uh... I don't overly disagree, I'm just shocked, because I don't know if I've ever heard a single person say this is their favorite performance of the five, much less two people on the same airwave. But for the record... Well, we haven't we haven't gotten to Wolf of Wall Street yet, well, but for up, so far. Up to this point, but I also will say, I'm so flabbergasted that I actually forgot what I was going to say. I had a point that, that I was going to emphasize, god damn it. Um, oh, I, I just thought of it. Do you guys know the Max von Sydow story that I have? I'm trying to think if you've told this or not. I've I don't think to, I don't yeah. think you've told this yet. I mean, we we haven't done an Exorcist retrospective yet, but I don't think you've told this yet. 
Right. Let's see. No, I probably it would take a long time to explain. No, go uh, ahead. I'll, I'll make it a blooper. Go ahead. When <laughs> when is it? Okay. So um, for several years, I impersonated Max von Sydow. I'm not kidding. This Jesus is true. Christ. Um, what at parties or? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> like as a paid um, person, like get your Max von Sydow impersonation. No, no, no. People thought I was the real Max von Sydow. Let me explain. Um, so when I was in college. <laughs> It's a kind of a long story, but I'll try. I'll try. Go ahead. Story. When I was I in college, deep. this is perfect. So. Yeah, exactly. When I when I was in college, I it was like two a.m. I was in a I was in my dorm, and I was like on the internet, and um, I was on Twitter, and someone on Twitter was like, "Oh, you know, the people who really annoy me on Twitter are the people who are just like they just exist to try. They they're just trying to like get the attention of celebrities, and it's like so pathetic and stuff like that." And I thought, wouldn't it be funny if I started a fake Twitter account of a celebrity and responded to that guy's tweet and was like, so true. Um, And then I thought it would be funny if it was a celebrity that probably is not on Twitter and is like the least like celebrity, like the least like Kardashian style celebrity. So I was like, oh, like Max von Sydow. Um, So I started a a Twitter account that was at real Max von Sydow. Oh, my God. The picture was Max von Sydow. Uh, was it like a publicity photo, or was it like... No, it was a picture from the Seventh Seal. Okay, all right. And I responded to the guy, and I said, Hi, you got a good point. And literally, that was it. Um, it was me and my I, my roommate at the time, kind of... I mean, it was my idea, but he encouraged me. Uh, he was an enabler. Um, and, uh, and so, I, it was just something that I just, like, did as, like, a joke for, like, a couple months, and I would, like... Occasionally, I'd go a couple of weeks and I'd be like, oh, yeah, I have a fake Twitter account. And I would, like, tweet something. I would just, like, make, like, like Werner Herzog-style comments. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, that's, that's kind right. of like, yeah. And it was just, like, so goofy. I had, like, four followers. It was, like, me, my roommate, and, like, two randos. And it was, like, a complete joke. And I was like, all right, cool. And I, like, kind of had forgotten about it. And then I was in Greece, and I had no cell phone reception for uh, some a period of time. And I was out, like, hiking and stuff, and then I, like, got to the hotel, and I, like, checked in, and I went to sleep, and I had the Wi-Fi, and I, and I woke up, and I checked out my phone, and I'd gotten hundreds, if not thousands, of emails. Oh, that, shit. That all said, Max wants sit out, you have a new follower. Max wants sit out, you have a new follower. Max wants sit out, you have a new follower. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? And I logged on. And it's all Star Wars fans because that oh. morning they had a Force down. Awakens exactly, <laughs> exactly. And somebody I still don't know who it was, but somebody who was like a big account, uh, like tweeted like the cast of the new Star Star Wars is you know at Oscar Isaac, at Adam Driver, <laughs> at Real Max Fun Sit Out. Oh my god! So I got all these people following me. That story um, is fantastic. Well, and I went mad with power. Uh, I kept this up for. <laughs> um, I got there's so many twists and turns with this thing. Um, I don't know if I should tell the whole story. No, that's fine, dude. Go, go, please. All right, so, so, the, oh, the lawsuit's coming up in a minute. Yeah. Well, I've never. I have talked about this on my social media, but I've never uh, like uh, gone on a fucking uh, recording and set it into a microphone before. So, but, but um, uh, the. So 
for me, it was just a joke. Like, I was like, I'm going to be so obvious that I'm not the real Max von Sydow. Like, my whole thing was just like, I'm going to be really obvious that I'm not Max von Sydow, but, like, just never acknowledge it and just see if people pick up on it. And, like, nobody picked up on it. I just kept gaining followers. <laughs> it was so strange. Um, and, I, like, people who knew Max von Sydow would tweet at me, like, actors who worked with him oh, who were no. verified. Sam Jones oh. from uh, Flash Gordon tweeted at me. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, who else? Uh, a couple other people. And, like, at one point there was a woman who claimed to be a psychic. She was, like, she's, like, one of these, like, charlatans who claims to be, like, have, have ESP and psychic powers and stuff. And she, she tweeted at me, oh, it was great seeing you at that dinner party the other night. And I was, like, yeah, it was great seeing you. You're very perceptive. <laughs> you're very... You clearly know a lot of stuff that other people don't know because of your special gifts, and you can. Re- I'm glad you can tell that we have a special connection uh, with your great powers and intuition. And she's like, "Yeah, I know, great smiley face." Um, and uh, at one point, I um, uh, there was a there was a merchant uh, a uh, was it it was like a comic book and movie and like merchandise like sci-fi toys collectible store in Britain that was having some financial problems. And they messaged me saying, hey, um, would you want to send us an autographed picture from, like, The Exorcist or Flash Gordon or something like that or that we could, like, sell? And it would just be really great because we're having a hard time. Uh, and I was like, hmm, I should not impersonate somebody <laughs> for this circumstance. Like, this is not – that would be really – that would be unethical. Like, that would be really bad. And it would be bad for that because they didn't – I'd be after that store if they found out if someone if they found out that they were selling if someone found out they were selling a fake Max von Sydow autograph that would be really bad. Um, but I was like I did want to help them out, so what I did was I found their kicks they had like a Kickstarter or something and I like tweeted it out a bunch of times. I was like this place is great they really need your help and they ended up saving the store. So you know oh my yeah. god nice yeah so you know I did it for good and for evil you know there's a little bit of both. Um, and what else happened? Oh, God. I would make up fake rumors about Star Wars. Um, at, one, at one point, I said uh, that I was going to be playing a character named Darth Merkin. Oh, my God. M-E-R-K-I-I-N, which is one extra I to a Merkin, which is a two-bit wig. <laughs> And people were, I didn't, this is not exactly what I was intending, but people were Googling, I mean, I, I knew what the pun was or whatever, but people were Googling Darth Merkin and then going, did you mean Darth Merkin? And they would click on it. Oh, my like, God. That was not my intention, but that's what, that was what ended up happening. And it got, like, reported on, like, Star Wars fan websites and stuff like that and, like, message boards. And people were like, oh, it's official. He's playing Darth Merkin. And I, I tweeted, Darth Merkin is going to make Vader look like a pussy. Uh, which is another pun, um, <laughs> and uh, that got that got like followed and everything. And there was somebody who was like Merkin, clearly a play on his character of Father Marin from The Exorcist. And I was like, yeah, that's definitely what it is. <sighs> um, and what else this happened? This is amazing. Yeah, I uh, oh, and then I got a bunch of other followers when um, when uh, he got cast on Game of Thrones because then I got all the Game of Thrones followers. Um, yeah. At least the Game of Thrones fans know how to read a run. And at this point, at this point, like there's nobody from his camp or anybody just trying to say, you know what, you're not the real Max Moncito. Shut it down. 
Yeah, Werner Herzog called his cell phone and threatened him. He said, <laughs> I will fly to cease and desist. That's the beauty of it, because, like, who in who is in Max von Sydow's circle that's going to be like, oh, hey, someone's impersonating you on True. Twitter. Like, that's not, oh, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and uh, and uh, who was the, I'm trying to think who the other person was who found out about some, was it Amy, who was it? Um, oh, let me, hold on a second. Let me, I actually... Check out my uh, my uh, Facebook. Is it Amy Simmons? Did she find out? Uh, was it her? Might have been. It was somebody. Fuck. Who was it? Um, I don't. I don't. Know. But uh, some famous actor also found out about uh, the Max von Sydow account um, and thought. I'm wondering if they are the re. Okay. I guess I shouldn't jump ahead yet, but, um, uh, okay, so when I got, so when Max got cast on Game of Thrones, I'm when I got cast on Game of Thrones. Seriously, at one point it was a little, like, I was like, would be referring to Max von Sydow, like, in the first person, I'd be like, but not the real Max, you know. Um, and when he got cast on Game of Thrones, I started another kind of fake rumor, because what happened was I tweeted, so glad to be joining Game of Thrones, and then I tweeted the Ats of a bunch of Game of Thrones cast members. So it's at Kit Harrington, at Amelia Clark, at Sophie Turner, at Eric Roberts. Uh, Eric Roberts, of course, was never on Game of Thrones, but some it got onto some fan websites of people going, "Oh, so Eric Roberts is going to be on Game of Thrones? That's why Max von Sydow is tweeting his name out." And it, like I got mentioned on multiple episodes of this Eric Roberts being podcast. Um. And it was a lot of fun for a while. And uh, then what ended up happening was my account got suspended uh, because they realized I was the real Max von Sydow, um, which nice. is fair. You know, which is fair. Um, and then I was like, well, you know, had a good run while it lasted. Um, but now it's now it's over. And then I was like, I was like, ah, I had a good run, but they didn't, they didn't shut down my account completely. They just kind of suspended it, like and stuff. Uh, I could still see all of my old tweets and everything like that. And then Max von Sydow died, and after a while, I didn't fucking do it while his body was still fucking. You know, I, I, I waited until you know it was months later, and then I emailed Twitter help or whatever, and was like. Hey, can I get my account back? No one's going to confuse me with the real Max von Sydow since he's no longer alive. Like, and they're like, no. And they just completely shut down my account. So all of my tweets are gone. Oh, shit. Yeah, I know, right? Um, but, you know, I like to think I did a little good. I saved that memorabilia store for at least a little bit in Britain. I don't know if it's still around. Uh, you know, I brought some, brought, brought some joy to some people's hearts and fucked with the fake charlatan psychic. So, you know... Wasn't and you fuck with Star Wars fans, which is which is very fun to do. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. All right, that's a fantastic story. So yeah, so that's the Max Lucidow story. I don't know how to transition from that back into uh, fucking. Let's just jump right in because it's gonna be it's gonna yeah. be a blooper. It's a long blooper, as but soon, it's... as soon as your account got suspended, you passed out and woke up in an insane. <laughs> Go. <laughs> okay, so. And that really is going to play into what happens in sort of the final flashbacks. Correct. Quick question. You, okay, so you guys can hear me fine. Okay, that's that's not a problem, right? Yeah, you're good. Okay, okay. My yeah, Mark, the ghost of Max Moxito just showed up behind us. 
My computer was acting up for a second, so I wanted to make sure that everything yeah. was fine. Okay, great. Yeah, you, you cut out for a little bit, but you're fine now. Go ahead. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. There's a fourth host. All right. Should I do the quote? Yeah, go ahead, end it. Okay, I want to make sure I get the wording right. I do have a quote, but I want to make sure I have a wording right of what I should say beforehand. So what should I say beforehand? <laughs> to say until next week or? Yeah, until next week. Yeah, okay. that's fine. Until next week. <laughs>